Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdell. Wouldn't try to go into different, like say West Africa and to go to Ghana if I didn't have somebody who, part of our team who knew that market well or who was a partner on the ground there. I'm not going to presume to know what to do. The same as when we went into Dominica, we actually first went to Virgin Unite, Richard Branson's, you know, foundation, and they put us together with some trade unions on the ground in Dominica, who actually literally got it through the port and customs and government and passed all the red tape. I mean, that was fantastic. We wouldn't have been able to get, not to mention the truck broke down, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those were the guys on the port, right? They get the containers off the ship. They get them to the truck. They got it up to where it needed to go at the clinic. So you have to have those kind of partners in the markets that you're in and to be successful. These are the things folks don't always talk about when it comes to scaling and technologies. You hear a lot about public sector regulation, about raising money, but not necessarily always about on the ground logistics. So appreciate that perspective. Well, that's actually a very important part of our lens is the complete solution that really everything you need has been thought of ahead of time and it's included in the package, including how are we going to get it there and who's going to use it and who's going to be available. And if somebody else is available that wasn't there, how can they be trained quickly and how easy is it to use? And literally, you know, it's going to be austere environment. You know, there's not going to be skilled engineers or whatever necessarily there to support it. How is it going to work? So it has to be high tech, low tech and all those things that seem like minute details. They are essential. All right, Lauren, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Great. Glad to be with you again, Nick. Yeah. So I am certainly have had the pleasure of getting familiar with Sesame Solar and the work that you do in the past. But for those listening in who may not be as familiar as I, why don't we get people up to speed with, you know, 60 to 90 seconds on the business? Sure. So Sesame Solar makes mobile, renewably powered nanogrids in the form factor of a trailer, like a construction trailer or a shipping container on a flatbed trailer that are fast to deploy and easy to use and provide continuous power for days and weeks at a time after uh, emergencies such as tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, storms of different kinds, a big snowstorm even that can knock power out. So uh, any kind of extreme weather event or man-made emergency we're able to provide power and essential services, and they're completely renewably powered. So we have solar, battery storage, and we use green hydrogen backup power. And that allows us to just have the inputs of sunshine and water. And so that we're breaking the dirty cycle, if you will, of taking diesel and fossil fuel powered generators to these weather emergencies, which in turn create more particulate and actually hasten the climate change, which causes these extreme weather in the first place. So we've got to do it differently from how we've been doing it. And that was the problem that we at Sesame Solar decided to focus on first. Yeah, fantastic. I think, you know, it's an, it's an interesting example of, you know, when people think about mitigating climate change and using renewable energy to do so, their mind often goes to, you know, utility scale power plants to plug into the grid and provide electricity to homes. But I think, you know, you found an underserved niche, if you will, of, you know, a lot of this emergency response is usually powered by something that's easily dispatchable and transportable like diesel. But it doesn't mean that that shouldn't also be an area where we apply 
low carbon energy sources. So talk to us a little bit about how you decided that that's where you wanted to build a business and, and work and innovate. Well, ever since Hurricane Katrina, which was shocking to me and probably most of our country and the world about how poorly prepared we were for it, I really came to think that it's really everybody's responsibility, citizens, businesses, and government to address climate change. And I wanted to do something. I was doing some investing, but I wasn't sure what part of the problem I can solve. And I've started a number of companies, and I'm, I always believe in having a narrow focus initially, like find a really bad pain point that you can really fix easily, and then you can build and scale from there. And so as I was thinking about disaster response, I'm like, look at all these diesel generators we're sending everywhere. That's just compounding the problem. But the reason we do it is it's easy. Everybody knows how to use a diesel generator, right? Mm -hmm. And there's no training particularly needed. You can look at a couple of pictures and figure it out. They're readily available most of the time. And so that's why we do it. And, and in an emergency, you're sort of trading the right thing to do for the necessary thing to do, right? So that's the problem. I thought if we could make it fast to deploy and easy to use and a complete solution mm -hmm. where we'd add something better than what's today, you don't have to try to figure it all out yourself at the site of the emergency, that that would be you know, a good solution to the problem. And I decided to focus first in the Caribbean because I said, if we can't do it there, we don't have a business. Mm -hmm. And so that's a good way to fail fast. And and so these are part of just my philosophy of starting companies is find this really specific pain point and fix it, but pick it in an area where you could really scale. It could get very big. Mm. You know, disaster response is going to be a big issue in the coming years. I mean, we're, we're looking at a kind of dystopian future of more and more frequent and more and more severe weather events. Right. Uh, lots, large parts of the planet becoming uninhabitable due to drought and heat and you know, a lot of conditions where you just can't even grow food or have enough water. So those conditions are dire and we're going to have to adapt and we're going to have to adapt in ways that don't further compound the solution. So that was really the thought and uh, came up with the notion of mobile renewably powered solutions that would really have everything in them. You know, so you'd have water, you'd have communications, you'd have space to have an emergency office to really have the people there on point who can help and that it would be shipped in a way and that it would get there quickly. Mobility is very important and that it could be taken the prob the services to the people who most need them. So that was really the vision and had to fit all those kind of criteria, easy to use, fast to deploy, scalable, always mobile, and it gets it the services to the people when and where they need it most. Yeah, there's a lot in the way that you kind of conceived of the business that I think maps to broader trends that I'm seeing sort of in the climate technology space that I think are important, you know, for one is, you know, a dual focus on something that mitigates climate change itself or reduces emissions to slow global warming. And that's obviously important, but also kind of this idea of adaptation of we also unfortunately know that there already has been global warming to date based on the emissions that humans have released over the last 200 years, and that will continue to grow and probably accelerate for at least a decade or two as we reduce emissions across the global economy. And so really thinking about, you know, how do we not just mitigate additional climate change, but adapt to the way that the climate is already changing all around us. And I think the impulse to go a bit more narrow with the solution, at least to start, is also something that folks are taking note of. You see a lot more venture capital funds that want to support climate technologies, narrowing their focus a little bit too, knowing that, you know, a lot more people are working on this problem and investing in this problem. Now you see funds 
you know, instead of saying we're going to invest in climate tech, saying we're going to invest in wildfire mitigation technologies. So a lot of that narrowing of focus, I think, is is important and useful as more people work on this problem. Absolutely. I mean, narrow is good when you're trying to be fast and have a complete solution. But of course, we can deepen and broaden our applications so that it's more adaptive. So our sort of product market fit essential problem is emergency disaster response. However, as we look at adapting, we can have pop-up retail that's fully integrated with renewable power and that's multiple to different conditions. We can be adapting at construction offices, which is a very big thing that happens at any greenfield site. Mm. And they're big consumers of diesel and, and they could be using renewably powered solutions. So there are many markets from military to oil and gas and mining, extractive, retail, all these different markets where actually people can use this as another solution. All events and movie industry. I mean, they're using diesel-powered generators. Mm, interesting. And that's noisy and polluting and could have renewably powered. So there are many, many applications that can be brought to market with partners. And so we know it can go broad, but we wanted to go deep and narrow first and felt that that was a good approach to it. And then I think the other thing to always think about, as you're especially in climate tech, is how to have profitable unit economics. So we had profitable unit economics from day one, and we hit profitability as a company last year, meaning we had enough sales of those units to be profitable. Fantastic. And we're both growing and being profitable this year. You know, we'll probably do some big investment next year. I hope we can maintain profitability, but growth will be important as well. But we're not going to give up those unit economics. In fact, we're continually looking at ways that we can improve them because that's kind of our threefold mission. We say triple bottom line, people, planet, profits. Love that. Right. So you have the profits because, you know, that's what the market wants. And that's what ultimately drives the ability to continue innovating. You can't just raise money indefinitely. And but it's first around people. And it really starts with great people serving people and who really have the spirit and the mission that we're trying to achieve and come together in, you know, with innovation and both business models, services, technology, all the ways that you can innovate. And then, of course, it's about the planet. We're in an existential crisis. So that's our triple bottom. We say, you know, people, planet, profits, <laughs> and you have to have all three. And that was a big piece of it as well, is deliberately building a team, a multicultural team, a team of, you know, different kinds of people with different skills and in all the true meanings of diversity. Mm. And then upskilling them and bringing them together. That's what makes a very strong team. And can really solve these problems that are intractable problems. I love that. Yeah. And there's a lot of really good trailheads in there that I'll, I'll want to come back to. To I want to also hone in on, you know, the actual kind of technology side of it for a bit before we get to some of, you know, I definitely want to come back to business, new markets, team, all that. But for folks listening who don't necessarily have a visual in their mind of what this looks like, let's start with, you know, maybe the renewable energy side of things. So you're building a technology that's easily deployable and integrates solar power. What's kind of, you know, like the capacity of the system in terms of how much energy it can produce from from solar power? Well, the answer to that question all starts with the form factor because it's whether it's the size of the trailer or the container, which first gives you the real estate for the solar array. Now we've added on to just rooftop solar with our, you know, walls that easily retract, open and close. We call it open sesame. <laughs> and we triple the size of the rooftop solar with the sidewalls, whether it's in a shipping container or it's in a trailer. So 
So imagine it's driving down the road. It just looks like a container or trailer. But when it's deployed, the walls open up, and now you have three areas for the solar array. Mm -hmm. So depending on the length of the trailer or the size of the container, that gives you your solar array. But generally, it's going to range from about 4 to 10 kilowatts with having no ground mounted. That's just solely can be transported with no extra installation. You open the door, flip a switch, and boom, your walls open up and you have this solar array. Mm -hmm. Then it comes with battery storage. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to have too much battery, more than you can recharge, or you know, you're going to have to take it back to port all the time, right, to get a grid charge or some other source of charging. So you need to think about the balance of how many the energy inputs and outputs. So how much are you going to use in terms of services that are contained inside our nanogrid? And so we're typically having, you know, all kinds of outlets inside and outside for device charging. It could be a defibrillator, it could be a phone, a laptop, an electric wheelchair, an EV. We can charge a lot of different things. So what is the average use that you're going to expect to do from that? And then you know, how much battery storage you need. And then we have the green hydrogen as the backup in case, okay, it's snowing or it's nighttime or you're in a wildfire in the smoky sky, then the solar might be only 50 or 40% efficient. So you need to have another power source. So we have the green hydrogen mm-hmm. and it's green because we use the solar powered battery to run the electrolyzer. Mm-hmm. And then we make the hydrogen gas slightly faster than we use it in the fuel cell, and then we store extra in solid state storage tanks. And so we have a little extra capacity. And then that keeps a nice continuous loop where all you need is the sun and water. But to answer your question about capacity depends on the size. So as I said, solar would would be ranging typically from four to 10 kilowatts. The battery storage typically from 15 to 150 kilowatt hours. And then depending on your needs, how many fuel cells do you need? You need one, they're typically four or five kilowatt fuel cells. You need one, two, three. And then depending on those, how much electrolyzers do you need to produce the gas? So it's there's no quick answer. It's a formula based on average and peak energy use. And then we store the water on board. We could potentially as well filter uh, river or tap water and multi-state to purify and deionize it. And so that you could have pretty much unlimited hydrogen capacity. Yeah, no, that was a really nice technical overview of the different components of the system. To make sure I fully understand, I'm interested in kind of dissecting a little bit more of, you know, the calculus of also adding green hydrogen as an energy storage mechanism in addition to the battery. I think you've already spoken to this a little bit, but, you know, why not just have additional energy storage capacity in the form of a battery, like what about the hydrogen is more flexible and makes that attractive to have on board as well? Well, with the hydrogen and the solar and the right size of battery, you can, by not overspending on the battery, so you can afford to have the hydrogen as part of the solution, you have a continuous energy loop. Because if you just have, let's say, 150 kilowatt hours of battery, but you only have 10 kilowatt of solar, you're not going to be able to recharge it in a day's time. So you have all that battery, then what are you going to do? You're going to put a diesel generator on it? Or are you going to go grid tie it? So it's not a very good use of that battery investment if you can't recharge it in an emergency. Typically, you're going to need power may be down for three, four, five days in a developed market. You think about PSPS shutoffs or wildfires in California, it could be three to five days at a time. 
you know, snowstorm might only be a few days, but in a aftermath of a big hurricane, like we just had with Ian, you could be weeks and months where there's no power out. There was no power available. And so how are you going to do that? And that's not so easy to take it back and forth and get it grid tight and then bring it back. So the ability to have a continuous energy loop, you could also add a small wind turbine, you know, one and a half to two kW wind turbine to it. That's still within our mobile form factor if you're in a wind favorable location. But you're creating this notion of an energy loop where solar's primary, but you have these backup facilities that you can use if solar's not as efficient as you need it to be. And let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the instances where you've deployed it. You mentioned, you know, Ian, we just saw in the U.S. was a good example of a lot of people losing power. And I think there were also, you know, some favorable news stories about communities that had a lot of solar power still having the ability to operate and have some electricity in those situations, as well as people that had, you know, batteries in their home, whether standalone or an EV. What are some examples of times where you've already deployed your technology in some of these disaster relief efforts and you know, how has that worked in successfully displacing diesel? I'll give you three examples and work from the most recent to the first. So we were just in, um, our solutions were in Fort Myers, Florida, right after Ian for a couple of weeks. Our customer Comcast was down at their facility near the airport there in Fort Myer. Mm. And they uh, had two of our crisis response nanogrids we built for them. And they also had uh, two 60-foot trailers of toilets, showers, and laundry, and they had Wi-Fi vans. So they were serving approximately 300 people a day between first responders, employees, and residents who were coming in and getting help from their emergency office. They were getting their phone or device charged or get a new phone if they'd lost it. They were able to use the Wi-Fi vans because a lot of the towers were down there so they could call their friends and family and let them know they were okay. Mm. And they could use the facilities to clean up. And so that that was just in action. Mm-hmm. Uh, after Ida, we were in Louisiana, a couple of different Home Depot parking lots, same type of solution where there's an emergency response, there's Wi-Fi vans, there's trailers of services you need like toilet showers and laundry. These are all the things, you know, you've been displaced. You have the clothes you're wearing, right? Maybe you can pick up a few things at the store you're at mm-hmm. uh, and you're just trying to clean up and get your phone and tell everybody you're all right and figure out your next step. So it's an important way to respond. And these uh, large companies like uh, that are customers like Comcast and Cox, that's what they do. They go to these affected communities. They provide assistance, not just to their customers, but to anyone in the area and to first responders. And they're also letting them communicate. That's a key piece. Mm. And then going back to our first hurricane that we dealt with right at the beginning of our company was Hurricane Maria Mm. that hit in the Caribbean, especially hard. And we were in the island of Dominica and we have two nanograds. They're still both working there. So they were deployed, you know, a few years ago, right? Wow. And they're still fully functioning. The Grand Fond supports a clinic in the remote part of the island. fantastic. And it's actually part of the clinic. So... Initially, it was for backup power because they have a lot of power outages, but they use it. It's Wi-Fi. It's, we have a refrigeration for medicines and insulin when their power goes out. They have a huge rainwater capture tank. Water is a big problem. Prior to our installation of one of our nanogrids, they were boiling and disinfecting it, 
We do multi-state filtration, 130 gallons a day of potable water we produce. Fantastic. So the whole community came out to see this. They literally put a concrete slab down, and they, that was a big deal. That's probably the hardest part of the project was getting the community to make a concrete slab. And it went by truck and ship to a few ports. Martinique finally gets on a rickety old truck. The truck broke down. <laughs> finally, they went up the hill. You know, our guys had to, you know, zip line into an eco lodge. There was nowhere to stay. The roads were out. But this thing is still working every day. And it's and it's saving 10 tons of carbon CO2 each year by just one nanogrid you know, being functioning daily like that. And, and it has a lot of benefits from communication to medical triage to refrigeration of medicines and the clean water. So that's an example that it has a long-term utility. It's not only could be used for emergency, you can do other things. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. I wanted to ask later, but I figure it makes sense to do so now, given that example of that was something that I was curious about is like more of like a permanent deployment of some of these technologies, because even though they're really part of the point is that they're highly transportable. There are a lot of regions in the world that could benefit from, you know, a nanogrid like this that's based on solar power fundamentally. I think, you know, there's a lot of communities in Africa, for instance, that run on diesel generators exclusively, but in which, you know, using solar energy would be an attractive alternative. So without diving too deep into perhaps like the business model side of that question yet, is that kind of part of the way in which you envision a lot of this technology of yours being deployed as some more permanent installations and like that. Yeah, that's really the, a lot of the point of the containerized versions mm. that they can be movable, but they're maybe semi-permanent. You can move them away from an advancing danger or move them to a new location if you want to redeploy them. But you can link three together without any extra switching or other technology. They'll just interconnect through little outlets that we can make to have them hook up and the three are then times three, whatever you have inside. So if it's, you know, 60 kilowatt hours of storage times three, now you have 180 kilowatt hours of storage. Most American houses use about 24, 25 kilowatt hours of power a day. So that gives you an idea of how much capacity that would be. Mm. And they could be pop-up retail. I mean, we've designed, you know, sort of the anchor tenants of retail in in food deserts, which would be a refrigeration of 18-foot refrigerator inside. You could conserve food, transportation. So you could have whether e-bikes or rickshaws or small last mobility vehicles that are set up for cargo. So you could bring the food and products back and forth. And also portable power that you would have as a charging and people could take it home and have small DC uh, appliances like LED lights, fans, and such that they could have power in their homes. So whether that's remote parts of India or Africa or other emerging markets, that's an example where these are really Maslowian needs, right? But they become anchor tenants to a retail mall, like we think of it, between the people who need the food and the farmers, they provide transportation and power back and forth. Mm. And then other services could pop up. So you could instantly have you know, a lot of other consumer services, cafes, barber, medical clinic, you know, grocery store, they all could be containerized and powered. And now you have a real mini grid and that can also have power for the community. So that's why really about thinking of it in a plug and play, you know, Lego blocks, we like to say modular way, it can provide the solution to many needs in emerging markets and still be movable. Okay, now there's an emergency, a wildfire approaching, but we've also figured out how to not too far away have flatbed trailers and pick them up and take them away to a new location. 
And let's also turn to the business model side for a second, because I think this is an interesting component of how you deploy across a lot of sites, right? So, I mean, I can easily see how someone like the US military has a lot of money to to buy one of these units from you. But how do you see the business staying profitable and still deploying it to the technology to a lot of these areas of most need where there's probably a mismatch between ability to finance something at the outset that has a you know high price tag for some of these communities versus the need for it? Right now we do sell. And so the, we've sold to big corporations, the military and to NGOs. We've worked with Direct Relief, for example, the largest U.S. medical charity. We, that's, we work with them in the Caribbean. We're looking at some opportunities with them now in Ukraine. So those NGOs are another way that they get donor funding to take to these kids that need it. Ultimately, we have a vision of mobile renewable power as a service. Mm where there would be made here in the US investors would you know invest into this and get a lot of you know tax advantages because of some of the new rules for the IRA inflation reduction act and also some of the monies for the bipartisan infrastructure bill so there's advantages of US made technology that then can be deployed by NGOs or people on the ground who can help for example in Ukraine we wanted to make sure it was really going to be used by the people who most need it and there would have to be local nonprofits to run it because we're not going to be able to go there and manage it, right? So a group like Direct Relief already has that. They already have worked with these nonprofits. They know which ones are working. They know it's going to really deliver medical. And even when you're thinking about putting comms in, you want to make sure right. that it's a positive. You're not creating a military you know, weakness or something, <laughs> right? So there's a lot that goes into it, even when you're thinking of doing a donation, when we worked in the Caribbean, it was with the Ministry of Public Health and with Dominica to make sure we're giving them exactly what they really need, not what we think they need, mm -hmm. but what they need and how they need to use it. And so that's complex. It's not something that's easily addressed. But I think working with these good NGO partners is the way. And then if we're able to have a more flexible model that can deploy them at scale in a variety of locations as needed, mm -hmm. that's for the innovation that's needed in the business model. But that's going to take a lot of capital to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think now is also an interesting time to be having this conversation because even in the U.S. presently, there's a significant diesel shortage. I guess the question to you is how quickly at this point can you produce your systems? Like I, I recognize that there's a lot of need for them. So, you know, that's always a, an important challenge in and of itself is, is manufacturing quickly. Well, we're in the great state of Michigan, which is, you know, uh, has all the advantage of auto industry here. I'm a native Californian. I wouldn't have tried this in California. It would have been pretty hard to do it as fast and as cost effectively as we've been able to do it in Michigan. But I'll give you an example. Like one of our first low-end solar systems that we built, the first one took us about two months and we got a large order for them. We make them in four days now. Wow. So higher-end hydrogen is a lot more complicated. You know, those are, we're going to get from probably 45 days, the goal is to get down to 15 and then uh, expanding our facilities, we can run, again, it's a state where people are used to multiple shifts, two, three shifts. That's a, it's a Michigan way of life, right? So there are, that's, again, something hard to do in California and some other areas. So there's ability to scale. And uh, that's a function for capital to increase manufacturing capacity. But we do have the advantage of, you know, many flex manufacturers, we call them here in Michigan, who can do outsource parts. But we're also integrating, you know, we're not building all this stuff from scratch. We start with the DOT approved 
trailer, for example, that we completely deconstruct and retrofit or, or a shipping container that's already ISO. And we're buying, we're component agnostic. So we just find the right components to really be part of our solution. So we're able to do that quickly by sourcing multiple suppliers in different parts of the country. So, and ideally as many in the Midwest as possible to reduce the freight time and cost. Mm. So we've thought about all that very carefully so that we can scale. If somebody says, I need a thousand, then, you know, come up with a plan for a thousand. Right. That is all possible. It's good automation engineering and, you know, speeding up a number of the processes that are today manual, just like we went from two months to four days. You can do that. It's just a, it's a stepped process. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting to talk about American manufacturing as part of this. This is something that I think we're seeing is a pretty important trend in 2022 in the US, decent amount of onshoring, whether it's related to, you know, battery material supply chains and folks recognizing that they want to be able to produce that domestically, but laudable that you all are producing a lot of, or at least putting together a lot of the technology domestically too. Yes. I mean, we're pure Michigan made in USA. (laughs) And capital's come up a a number of times now as, you know, obviously a key ingredient to scaling this significantly and displacing a lot of diesel use around the world. When do you think you'll take that next step to go out and, you know, raise another round or what other challenges come to mind when you look ahead to 2023? Yeah, we'll do another round uh, in the first half of next year. Uh, approximately that, it, you know, we that will be used to scale our manufacturing capacity to bring on more bench depth in our management team, mm. um, more expertise around uh, this manufacturing systems and scaling. So those are things we plan to do. We've been able to do it on a small amount of capital today because remember, go back to my first comment about profitable unit economics. Yep. You're not losing that much money if you keep a lean overhead and you're making money on each transaction. You just have to increase the number of transactions. So having that always as our focus has helped us a great deal to be very capital efficient. And right now, that's actually attractive in the market because companies that are doubling and tripling their revenue like we are and also profitable, there's you know, there's a small number. Mm. So that is, shows a, a good management and a good way of thinking about the problem and good financial metrics that uh, will help us. And one of the reasons we went through the Morgan Stanley Accelerator Program was really to think about what would it take to scale to get $100 million in debt to start to fund mobile renewable power as a service, to have that inventory? And what are the kinds of metrics we'd have to have? And what should we expect about that? It was enormously helpful. Mm. And so at the right point, we will bring on debt. It is kind of a chicken and egg problem. You've got to Go to these big agencies and customers and get letters of intent, like how many would you get for how long and in which areas? Right. And then you go to your lenders and say, okay, I have you know potential customers for this. I need standby credit line. And then you go back to the customer and say, okay, and how are you going to really, how many are you going to order now? And all right, now I got to borrow this. Now I got to make it. So it's that kind of iterative process. But there's a lot of drivers now, again, between these two bills we talked about with the infrastructure and the IRA. These are really good things that'll be helpful to us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you also spoke earlier about kind of being really intentional about how you build team. And I imagine that's something that will be a big part of scaling as well, in addition to capital. For folks listening in who, you know, a lot of people that engage with my content always kind of raise their hand and say, hey, you know, this is really interesting stuff. I'd love to, you know, use my own skills to help advance it. What types of roles are important for you to hire for in the next year? And what types of folks are you looking for? Well, we're going to be hiring across the board. So right now, our biggest focus in hiring is our, what we call technicians who are 
actually making and assembling our nanogrids. And we have a wide range of skills of people who do that from a lot of native Michiganders who you know, basically barely got out of high school and you know, did shop and were welding and fixing cars in their garage. These are great. They have great hard skills. Mm. Some of them might have worked in the auto industry or worked in the tier one suppliers. Uh, we have some in that area who also have some engineering background as well. So we look at improving manufacturing flow and different technologies. We're going to be moving into more 3D metal printing and some low volume uh, robotic welding mm. for things that make sense uh, with the right kind of jigs and such. So these are how you sort of upskill your team. Mm. So that's the number one. But then we'll be, of course, sales and marketing. So sales, business development, um, customer success. We really focused on customer service. We go out and we have a whole white glove experience when we go to that customer. Uh-huh. We walk them through how to use it. We've built in augmented reality training. So we show them how that works and how they can in turn sh- share it with their people and even works offline if the, the Wi-Fi is down mm. and it's on your phone. So you can get a video or how-to instructions about how to use and operate, which is very important in an emergency, and how to use the maintenance app so that they keep everything up to date. So and how to have the software monitored. So that's real important to do that white glove because then we can support them better. Uh-huh. So it's real focus on serving that customer and staying in close communications with them. So there'll be engineering, there'll be marketing, there'll be technician, factory work, you know, various business development, all of those across the board. And then at the management level, we're bringing in experts in scaling manufacturing and in manufacturing and financial experts and the like to help us really address this problem. I mean, this is a huge, huge, huge market. Mm-hmm. We're talking many multi-billion dollar markets. And if you really were to say everywhere in the world that needs this, you know, it's a trillion dollar market. It's huge. Right. Obviously, we're not going to get all of that, but that is a very large potential. Right. We are focused on, you know, Canada, US, Mexico, Caribbean. It doesn't mean we couldn't be in other markets. We could with partners. Right. But you really have to be on the ground, like we talked about with Ukraine. You really have to know the territory, the people, to make sure we're going to have that same kind of experience that we can give them in the U.S. Yeah, well, it sounds like a lot of opportunities across the board. And I always love a good shout out for the undersung, you know, blue collar technicians, electricians. We love them. They're they're fabulous. And we have all ages. We have a lot of women. I mean, we are very diverse. Right now, we're half female. That may not continue as we get more and more in the factory because typically there are more men in the hard skills than women. But we're very open to that and to training. And we're diverse in ages and, you know, ethnicity, religion. We have all the different religions celebrated. (laughs) So and we also seek people who've been in the military, who've lived in other parts of the world. Several of us speak other languages. I mean, we are looking for diversity in perspective and experience. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of kind of, you know, I mean, I can definitely see the importance of that diversity of perspective in as you're talking about the potential size of the market, finding folks who think differently about ways to potentially scale to some of those different areas. I can see the value in that. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't try to go into different, like, say, West Africa and to go to Ghana if I didn't have somebody who part of our team who knew that market well or who was a partner on the ground there. I'm not going to presume to know what to do. Same as when we went into Dominica, mm. we actually first went to Virgin Unite, Richard Branson's you know, foundation, and they put us together with some trade unions on the ground in Dominica who actually literally got it through the port mm. and customs <laughs> and government and passed all the red tape. I mean, that was fantastic. We wouldn't have been able to get 
not to mention the truck broke down, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those were the guys on the port, right? They get the containers off the ship. They get them to the truck. They got it up to where it needed to go at the clinic. So you have to have those kind of partners in the markets that you're in and to be successful. These are the things folks don't always talk about when it comes to scaling and technologies. You hear a lot about public sector regulation, about raising money, but not necessarily always about on the ground logistics. So appreciate that perspective. Well, that's actually a very important part of our lens is the complete solution that really everything you need has been thought of ahead of time and it's included in the package, including how are we going to get it there and who's going to use it and who's going to be available. And if somebody else is available that wasn't there, how can they be trained quickly and how easy is it to use? And literally, you know, it's going to be austere environment. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not going to be skilled engineers or whatever necessarily there to support it. How is it going to work? So it has to be high tech, low tech, and all those things that seem like minute details, they are essential. The ruggedness for austere conditions, the logistics, the local partners, all of that is what makes it a successful deployment. And speaking of kind of this conception of like a really complete product, is there, you know, looking ahead to the next couple of years, do you think you'll mainly be manufacturing, you know, pretty similar version of what you have now, just in different sizes and to deploy to different areas? Or do you think there's additional fundamental things that you want to add on to the technology in the same way that you recently added the green hydrogen component on top of the original model? Well, we're always going to be innovating. I mean, that's, again, the, the advantage of being component agnostic, whatever that component is, whether it's an energy component, a water filtration component, a communications component, whatever that is that we can have best of breed. I mean, we're looking and hoping for solid state battery technologies made in USA to be coming online and we want to be early in on testing that. You know, there are increasingly new and more energy efficient solar technologies and solar concentrating technologies. So there are a lot of, because we don't have anything so tied to a particular form of a component that we can adapt in this this Lego plug and play way, then nothing has to be hard sized I mean, even down to all of our constituent construction pieces, they're literally extruded aluminum with different fasteners and different substrates. So you can put it in any different way and you don't, you haven't broken the mold that you have to go back and start over. And so that allows us to continuously innovate and find really what's the best of breed. Now, we don't want to be too bleeding edge because go back to <laughs> got to work in austere environments, got to be rugged, got to be tested. You know, we need to make sure it can be made in quantity with, from a company that can back it up. So those are all considerations in the supply chain, but uh, we will always be innovating mm. and coming up with many, many solutions. I'm sure there are ways of using this we haven't even thought of. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you just made too. I think it's always worth thinking of, like even when folks have devised technology for a specific application as you have, it's always worth thinking about where else it could be useful, right? Like there was another company recently that raised their seed round to take insulation from spacecraft and use it in the home. And that's a good example of you don't always necessarily know where across the entire kind of new climate economy, as I call it, there could be useful applications of a better technology, supply side or demand side. But it's always worth kind of keeping an open mind with that respect. Absolutely. I mean, we've thought about the film industry and events industry before, but we haven't really made any inroads. But I was actually interviewing a candidate in who lives in Georgia and was talking about, oh, you know, Tyler Perry in the film studio there, and he's a big donor in emergencies. 
you know, this is the kind of person that might want to use the technology for their film studios and for mobile tech and then take it on the road when there's a disaster. Mm-hmm. Well, I never thought of that, but that's just one among thousands of different kinds of applications that could be done. Yeah, film is pretty interesting. I uh, I think it was, I don't remember exactly was when it was earlier this year, but I was in LA and there was actually a pretty big conference that I heard about through a friend where it was folks in Hollywood thinking about, you know, what's our carbon footprint and how do we help decarbonize our industry? And yeah, it's a great example of something that you wouldn't necessarily think of, of having a pretty dirty fossil fuel footprint, but in some cases, as you mentioned, they certainly do. Oh yeah, you got a lot of trailers running on diesel and you know all the film production itself running with diesel power. It's noisy and smelly. Yeah. So zooming out a little bit, you named a couple technologies that I think are important and where there's a lot of innovation happening as they might pertain to your product, solid state batteries, solar concentration. But you know, I'm curious, outside even the purview of your business, what are some things that you're tracking that you're particularly excited about and you know, other areas that you're excited where there's a lot of innovation happening? Well, this whole notion of power as a service, uh, you know, we're seeing lots of different iterations of it. I had one of the first software as a service companies back in the late 90s. Mm. And, uh, you know, so I was a pioneer in that area. And I really think that that's a fascinating way to really crack the code. And for our case, it would be multiple streams of revenue because you'd have a hardware lease. So basically someone would sign up for, you know, three, four, five year lease of so many units that they would use for what period of time. It might be not the whole year, but maybe seasonal, four, five, six months mm-hmm. in different configurations. Then you'd have the software license. You'd have the data aggregation and the, you know, the data monitoring to make sure it's working. Mm-hmm. Then you'd actually have the logistics of getting it there and back. And then you could have the people to power it. And so that's a really complex model. I'm thinking about that, looking at what other people are doing in the power as a service. A lot of that tends to be utility based or, you know, those kind of agreements. But I think it could be done in a different way. And to me, the really innovative thing with that would be in a so-called fallow period, if you couldn't map the seasons to be in the off season for some, there's some that will overlap. But there would be a period of time, probably in some winter times, when it wouldn't be as used. And I would like to put them on tribal nations or disadvantaged communities to have impact there and uh, also train people to be part of the mobility and deployment teams. Right. And so I think that's a really, you know, and it's got a good business aspect too, which is you don't have to pay to store it and pay property tax. (laughs) You're giving back and having an income, I mean, an income for power or a reduced cost of power to places that can use it. And it becomes a training bed. So I like to think about different business models of how do we achieve these goals, Right. thinking about how to do it differently. So besides tracking the technology, I think the real win is going to be around having an elastic financial model that can enable many different ways of you know, solving the problem and paying for it in different mm. ways. Got it. Yeah, understood. Well, Lauren, it's been a pleasure having you. Uh, where should folks follow Sesame Solar and you to keep up with the latest and to you know maybe learn more about where you're deploying the technology successfully. Sure. Well, thanks, first of all, for inviting me. This has been fun. Uh, If you're interested in working at Sesame Solar, work at sesame.solar. And of course, that's our website, sesame.solar. We're also on LinkedIn. And for now, we're on Twitter. We'll see see what's going to happen with Twitter. And that's uh, sesame underscore solar. And we love to hear from you. And again, really happy to be here with you today, Nick. Yeah. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.